Welcome to This Is My Story, a podcast series on the real and raw journeys of many Australians. Brought to you by the Continence Foundation of Australia. We are the national peak body for bladder and bowel control health, supporting the one in four Australians who experience incontinence. Incontinence is a common condition, but in many cases it can be prevented, better managed and even cured. Seeking advice and support from a health professional is the first step. Join us each week as we bring you a different story and perspective from those who live with or have experienced incontinence. Hello and welcome to This Is My Story. My name is Nicola Reid. The title of today's podcast is Not Every Disability is Visible. This can be a situation for many people where others can't see your struggle, whether it's pain, discomfort, or the inability to walk very far, because you might look otherwise well. This is the case for my guest today, Stephanie Thompson. Steph is a published author, advocate, and founder of BraveMama.com, a platform which supports women to make informed decisions before childbirth and beyond. So welcome, Steph, and thank you so much for being my guest on the podcast today. It is my absolute honour, Nicola, and I really hope I can bring so much value to your audience today. I'm sure that you will. So, Steph, if we start with the traumatic childbirth injury that you experienced, can you tell us a bit about what happened? Of course. I feel like this part now, seven years on, is no longer my main story. So if you don't mind, I'm going to keep it really succinct. Is that okay? Absolutely. <laughs> and and two, because I've written a book about it, it goes into more detail. But in a nutshell, I had my little girl, Elsie, seven years ago. And what you would picture to be an ideal pregnancy and pre-labor heading into the birthing suite. Um, really lovely experience at the beginning of the birthing until it wasn't. <laughs> and by that, I mean, both my husband and I were totally blindsided blindsided by what happened next. We went from kind of giggling when I was in the bath and I was saying, wow, is this it? Is this what women are talking about? Because I've got this. Like (laughs) I was really cocky and very confident that um, because everything had gone so smoothly, that I was like, right, this is actually going to be easy. And what it felt like in that next moment was relaxing candles, bath, music, husband, joy, to legs in stirrups, five or six people in the room who I had never even met who were talking at me to my husband all the while inside my mind. I was thinking, what the heck is wrong with my baby? They just kept telling me, it's fine, it's fine. And I was thinking, well, if it's fine, why are you all here? And why am I sitting here like this with legs and stirrups when I'm meant to be active birthing? I'm meant to be on all fours. I'm meant to be doing all the calm birth stuff. Nothing was calm about that entire scenario. Um, Cutting, you know, but getting to the point, I basically had a baby who was posterior, so facing the, the opposite way to what she needed to be, where they attempted to turn her with the a vacuum. Uh, they did that four times and it failed each time. They then attempted a forceps delivery, but sorry, and in between that was an episiotomy from the front to the back, uh, a diagonal episiotomy. Then the use of forceps, 
with a two or three degree tear as well. So baby was out on my chest. And instead of that magical loving moment that we are told we're going to have, I think my husband and I just were in shock. We're just like, oh, okay, there she is. But there was no joy, there was no tears, there was no, oh my God, she's so beautiful, or any of that. And I think that 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 part there is the traumatic part, even as I stumbled to say that just now, because of course we loved her, but we didn't have that at that moment. And I guess society tells us that, oh, you should just be grateful. You've got your baby and she's alive and you're alive and and enjoy her, but it didn't match how our emotions were feeling at that time of disappointment, shock, dismay, mm-hmm. what the heck, <laughs> basically. <laughs> um, so, so that was the birth itself, but the injury is like a whole nother chapter. And I, do, do you want me to kind of dig a bit deeper into that now? Well, I guess, as you said, Steph, it, it is a big story and I've asked you to put it into a nutshell, which is probably a little bit unfair but I think um, I know that you experienced um, a lot of issues afterwards and you were really unprepared for that. And mm. um, part of that was losing bladder and bowel control. So how did you deal with that? Mm. Uh, I didn't. Right. Yeah, I, that's my honest That's my honest response is that I didn't, but probably more so after the fact. And if I can unpack that a bit more. So when um, baby was born and there were, we were in hospital for two days, one and a half days max, I was feeding and I had to get up and go to the bathroom. And of course you're numb. There's a lot of stuff happening down there. And I had the maternity underwear on and, you know, the nappy size things. And I went to the toilet and I was like, oh, something feels really wet, like more than blood wet. Um, like when you have your period. And when I had gone to the bathroom, my nappy was actually full of fecal matter. Mm. And I didn't know that I was pooing myself because <laughs> I couldn't feel a thing. Yeah. And that continued. And when I say I didn't cope with it, I probably mean I didn't deal with it. I think because I was so embarrassed and so ashamed, no one had ever spoken to me about a potential that you could be pooing yourself as you walk to the bathroom. Mm-hmm. Incontinence rise, urinary, I probably understood that a teeny bit better, being an athlete and having that light bladder leakage when I was running or, or training to an intense degree. So I understood that bit and thought, well, of course, there's been a lot of pressure, a lot of things happening that's probably to be expected. But I certainly did not expect the fecal incontinence at all. Wow. Did you talk to anybody about it at the time? Um, no. <laughs> <laughs> Which probably sounds a little bit ridiculous now that I've kind of told the entire world what happened. <laughs> but I was just probably too focused on trying to manage breastfeeding and sleep deprivation and trying to be the best mum mm. that I could be that I just thought, well, Hopefully she's going to go away by itself, you know? Yeah. And it's clearly from your book, Steph, you were just totally unprepared for a lot of these things that you had to contend with after the birth, weren't you? 
Oh, yeah. You just saying that right now gave me goosebumps because <laughs> underprepared is probably not even close mm. to the feeling you get when you think, okay, I've read all the pregnancy books. I've done the classes. I went to the next level private classes. And how come they don't talk about any of this? It must just be me. It must just be my fault. It must be my failure. It must be me. So therefore you don't really want to tell anyone. Mm, that's a very lonely place to be, isn't it? Uh, yeah. yeah. For, every, for everyone involved in, from this mm. side, for my husband and myself, because even our closest allies in this world, our family, had no clue. Mm. We just kept it our little secret for a, a long time. Wow, that's really difficult. So, Steph, do you um, have ongoing issues with continence now? Yes, I have had fecal incontinence, but not the same as in the hospital in mm -hmm. terms of it's not fluid stool this time, which, mind you now, many years on, I found out it th that in particular could have been because they inserted a, um, what do they call it, a, a, a pessary tablet style thing that was meant to make the stool loose so that I wasn't putting pressure on my perineum when I did have to go to the toilet. But no one told me that at the time, that they had put it in there. <laughs> oh, gosh. <laughs> and, and so you look back through your medical notes and you're like, oh, that would have been nice to know that. <laughs> um, but following fecal incontinence is more, it was a formed stool and I just did not have the capacity to contract my anal sphincter muscle enough to hold it in and they just kind of fell out and I I'm going to be really um let's be really clear it was like little rabbit droppings <laughs> I think if you can give a visual to people and they can say oh yeah that happened to me too that's what it was like because incontinence doesn't have to be your entire pants are full of poo it mm. can just be little things that then you're like hang on that's not quite right either. Yeah. So like occasional leakage, that sort of thing. Yes. Like where did you just come from? I didn't yeah. even feel you and that's that's worrying, right? Yeah, absolutely. So, Steph, does that mean you still need to be prepared and ready for that to happen at any time? I am because I'm fearful all the time and, and becoming less fearful uh, probably only in the last three months when I'm going through a different healing journey. However, I just ensure that I am the number one person to advocate for period style underpants because mm -hmm. they capture bladder leakage, you know, all the things that come out of that area. I just wear them all the time now just yeah. to be on the safe side and they're comfortable enough to just be like your normal underwear. So it's not a big deal for me. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Steph, um, I know that you've been through a lot with medical professionals, physiotherapy, you know, a lot of, um, you've been down a lot of paths basically to um, try and heal. Um, has anything like pelvic floor exercises, have they helped you to any extent? Um, I wish I didn't start that with um, because <laughs> <laughs> the short answer is yes. Mm -hmm. I think you have to look at your entire body and health as a holistic person. So whilst they have not fixed 
or reversed my pelvic organ prolapse or anything like that, they have allowed me to maintain strength in the muscle that I do still have. And we know it's way more important to have movement as medicine. So if I'm keeping my upper body strong, I know that I'm putting less pressure on my pelvic floor, for example, when I need to lift anything, the shopping, the washing basket, the child, whoever, whatever. If I don't do physiotherapy or if I don't do some type of strengthening exercise, especially of your glutes and your legs, your tummy, all of the all of the core, basically, if you don't do anything, it can probably only get worse for you. Yeah. And I think uh, if I can just add here, as you mentioned, seeing so many physiotherapists and doctors <laughs> over the seven years, trying to curate all of their opinions, because some of them are very differing from saying things like, you can never lift above five kilos again. So if you've had a four kilo baby, you can't pick it up next week. <laughs> like That's the advice you're given, which is rubbish. Um Rubbish in terms of not practical. I mean, you're told that you can't uh, do things like lift your washing basket or pick up the groceries or vacuum or mop. And so in the very early days, I had that in my head, in my headspace. And so then I didn't do anything. But sometimes by being underactive, by sitting or laying down all day, those muscles are becoming weak, weaker. And therefore, you're not keeping strength of what you actually do have left, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. So it sounds like it, there were a lot of mixed messages and, and your own body was telling you that movement was actually better than, you know, non-movement. Probably from learning, probably from mm-hmm. just listening to different uh, professionals along the way. And And one in particular said to me, if you've been told not to lift your five kilo baby, Who's going to do that if your partner's at work? Tell me that. And I couldn't I couldn't answer that. And so she said, let's get you functionally fit. If you're going to have to pick up this baby, let's let let me show you how you can do it because you'll need to do it to help you. And I loved that. It was so practical. Yeah, great. Great. So, Steph, you say in your book um, that you live with a dynamic disability. Can you explain what that means? Of course. It's a relatively new term, and I'm so grateful that I found it because I never found myself in any box or category in terms of a disability or being a fully abled person. And at the same time, I never felt like I could still be a fully abled person. I was in this no man's land. Mm. I had my best friend who was physically disabled by a disease in a wheelchair. For the society to see her, they got it. But society can't see my prolapse. It can't see my pain, my discomfort, my struggle to walk, and therefore it doesn't exist. So I would say it's an invisible dynamic disability And to answer the point about being dynamic is that it's not always at the same time, every single day, 24-7, a a debilitating thing. Sometimes, for example, first thing in the morning, 
after having a full night's rest and being horizontal, your body gives you this beautiful chance to reset. And so when you wake up in the morning, there is limited pain. But as the day progresses, and thanks to gravity, your pelvic organs start to shift down the vaginal canal and out of the opening. The more you are upright, the more you are walking, the more you are standing. And so typically, I'm going to say around about that three o'clock time of the day, I'm in a fair bit of pain and I need extra support at that time of day. So if it's picking up my kids from school, I need to be closer to the gate. I get out of my car. I walk straight to the seat. I sit (laughs) to alleviate the pain. I get them. We go straight back to the car and we head straight home. That's that's the invisible part that no one can see, but that, that's what we do to manage. Mm. So as the day progresses, that gets harder and harder for you, standing up, et cetera. You know, that sort of, like you said, the force of gravity, everything starts mm. to be pulled down. Yeah. And you probably will hear women say words like dragging, heaviness, mm. fullness. However, I want people listening right now to imagine this analogy. In the morning, it's think of it like the size and the feel and the weight of a ping pong ball, where it's it's noticeable, it's there, but it's not life-changing. By three o'clock, so it's heavier, it's bigger, it's tasking. And then by that bedtime routine, 7 p.m., I feel like Miley Cyrus hanging on that wrecking ball <laughs> between my legs. And it's it's intense. It's more than dragging. It's more than heavy. It's my God, I'm going to bed. I cannot stand here or be here any longer. And that for us is is it suits well. You know, being previous athletes, we we were happy to go to bed early. So we literally put the kids to bed at seven, Nicola, and we're in bed by seven thirty. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. Which if anyone ever asks us to go out at night time, we're like, ooh, um, <laughs> let's think of a reason why we can't. <laughs> However, um, that is changing ever so slightly with where I'm at now compared to where I was two years ago, three years ago, even seven years ago. That's good to hear that things are improving. Um, And I remember you saying, Steph, um, that, you know, when you constantly telling someone you're in pain, people tend to switch off. And so you developed a pain rating scale to communicate with your husband. Can Mm. you tell us how that works? Yes, this was something that came to me intuitively was that exact same thing. Like some things you just can't avoid. If it's someone's birthday and it's nighttime, you can't always say no. And so we would say things like, okay, yep, we can go for dinner. This was the internal conversation within our own family. And I would say to him, uh, would get there. like by that time, if it's an evening thing, I'm already feeling a little bit pain. So we use the scale between one and 10, one being that feeling in the morning of being okay, five kind of hitting that, oh, I'm starting to feel it. I need to sit down. By that seven, I'm saying to him, okay, babe, I'm at a seven. He automatically knows, all right, I'm going to have to start wrapping up this conversation. I'm going to have to start rounding up the children if they're present so that we can leave within the next 10 minutes. When it's ever got to a nine and 10, he knows I'm literally giving him a high five and tagging out for the rest of the night. 
that has happened on a very regular basis. (laughs) I'm very thankful he's receptive to that pain scale, but I think that's the concrete thing he needed instead of me saying constantly, Mm. I'm in pain, I need to sit, I'm in pain, I need to sit. I got sick of singing the song. He probably got sick of hearing the song, but I'll tell you, he never complained, to be fair. But I just felt like it gave a a better level of communication to help someone understand where you're at when you yourself don't have the words to explain what's happening at that time. This is pre-writing the book. So I had to come up with something. I had to get help somehow. And look, I just, I do particularly want to touch on, um, thankfully, when you just said, oh, it's good to hear that it's getting better. Just to clarify, the physical symptoms are exactly the same. Nothing has changed. By seven o'clock, I'm still ready to to lay down. But the journey I'm on right now is more in that mental head and heart connection space, which is probably an entire different episode. So I'm not going to go into it. But I just want to say for anyone listening right now, I have not fixed my prolapse. I have not reversed my prolapse. I'm just thinking about it in very different ways. Mm. That's really interesting, Steph, because um, my next question was around, you know, what changed for you. So in your book, The Day My Vagina Broke, you say the big change for you was when you realised you couldn't change your situation but you could change your thinking. How did you get mm. to that point? Um, I think potentially I've always had that resolution-based mindset. Being in education and teaching you know, students from kindergarten to to high school for 20 years, they are constantly coming at us with challenges and problems that one size doesn't fit all. So therefore our creative thinking must come into play. So I would, I'm very grateful that I have that instilled in me to start with (laughs) because my mind always says, it's very curious and it always says, but what if? So, okay, this is your physical situation right now. You are not able to get a resolve this way, that way, or that way. So what if you tried something different? What if you did something different? And and by that, let's illustrate that a bit more. For example, when the physiotherapist said, you can't lift over five kilos, you shouldn't be doing this, you shouldn't be doing that. And I'm like, but what if... I could do something else. So yes, I can't carry my washing basket, but what if I was to go and get one of those Nana style trolleys that our Nana's had, you know, when they wheeled it out to the back of the heels hoist, what if we got one of those? And so we did. And so we just happened to find, I don't know, call them shortcuts, call them tips, call them tricks, whatever you want to call them, just ways of surviving beyond prolapse to the point where we can feel like we're thriving somewhere at some point in the day and not everything's doom and gloom. Mm. And uh, yeah, in your book, you call them workarounds. There's a great chapter on all of those workarounds, you know, alternatives, like you said, the the trolley, so you're not carrying a washing basket, lots of tips and tricks, which I think are amazing. Mm. Do you know one of the ones I probably didn't mention there because it was a double-edged sword. So while it broke my heart that I had to do this, I now look back at that and think that was actually a very smart thing. Mm -hmm. So when I, my second baby came along and I could no longer lift him into the cot because 
he had one of those cots where the mattress was quite low. Picking him up and putting him in was very difficult. We decided to take the cot rail off and just have a toddler bed from the time he was one and a half. So he was very low to the ground, so he was obviously still safe, but he'd never had a guardrail because that meant that I could lay down on the floor and I could still put my hand in and pat him off to sleep and still have that mother experience of putting my baby to bed and getting him up in the morning without having the traditional cot. Now, to this day, he's now five we lay down in his bed for book time. So I can't stand there and read to him or sit and read to him, but we lay down together. And it's actually a really beautiful thing that was created from something quite traumatic. Oh, that's really nice. Steph, um, when we last talked, um, you were really passionate about advocacy for women who've experienced um, pelvic organ prolapse and other um, traumatic childbirth injuries in the workplace and this comes back I guess to sort of those workarounds and um, solutions in terms of okay you may not be able to lift but you still have a lot of other skills which are still um, very employable and very valuable can you talk a little bit more about that yeah this is a big one Nicola mm -hmm. it's a huge one because if we break it down a bit and think okay over 50 percent of our population uh, reproductive organ female. And if 50% of those people are going to experience pelvic organ prolapse within their lifetime to some extent, this is beyond anything that we have ever addressed to this size for women before. So we talk about breast cancer quite well now, which is great. We talk about um, you know ovarian cancer to some extent, probably needs some more. We talk about periods now, and I feel very liberated by that from the help of, you know, lots of women advocating before me. So I feel like I'm just stepping into what women have already done to feel seen, heard, and supported. But this space in particular, prolapse is still under wraps. It's still hush, hush, quiet, let's not talk because women are so embarrassed by it. I would love to go back to my career and workplace now, having written the book, found my voice, advocate for myself in a way that I just couldn't back then. Six, six seven years ago, after the birth of Elsie, I had to let go of my career. I didn't have a choice because I think twice, actually. Yeah, it was. It was twice I had gone in to speak to my supervisor about having difficulty doing things. But as you can imagine, I couldn't explain, I couldn't put into words something I didn't fully understand myself. Mm -hmm. At that time, I still wasn't grasping what prolapse is or how it affects me or how to manage it. There were no kind of workarounds but back then. But now I think, wow, I didn't actually have to let that go. If I could have said to my employer, I'm here, my mental space, everything else is 100%, if not overcompensating <laughs> for the physical things like playground duty or taking the children on an excursion or even just simply walking around the classroom to get them to engage with children. 
I now look back at that and say, oh God, but we could have done it this way. We could have done that. I didn't have to do that. And it's the same way when we think about our nurses and anything where that's a physical interaction with someone. I'm that curious person that says, but what if we could find a just as important role for that person to give everything that they have to offer in this world and not make them lose their employment, their life, their superannuation, Mm. their financial security, because that's what we're talking about here. That's Mm -hmm. how impactful this prolapse thing bloody is. (laughs) You You can hear my passion because like simple things, if you have to wear pants as part of your uniform, let me go in and advocate for you to at least have something like what I wear is maternity wear. No one knows that I'm pregnant, but it doesn't have the pressure still Mm. can be part of a uniform, but they feel like they should be very simple solutions to complex problems. Mm. Mm. And it it really just takes a lot of greater awareness and education, doesn't it? And um, people like yourself, Steph, who, you know, speak out and talk about your story openly as well. We still have a very long way to go if we're talking about um, the hierarchy and who is charged for caring for us, it be it in your workplace or even in the health system, we're still dealing with the men at the top who either don't want to listen, can't listen, um, don't want to take action. Like, honestly, how many times have you heard people say, if prolapse was something that men experienced like erectile dysfunction that got millions and gazillions of research dollars, if this was happening to men, we wouldn't be here. You and I would not be having this conversation because mm. they would have put in the time, effort, money required to have better support for this. Mm. So once again, as you said, acceptance, understanding, education, um, you know, we, we have come a long way. As you said, you know, we talk about periods now, but it has mm. taken a long time, hasn't it? Yes, I'm very grateful to those who have tread the path before me. It's now up to us, the Brave Mama community, to continue that for women with prolapse. Mm. And that's one of the key things, isn't it, with your podcast series, Steph, The Lowdown. Um, Can you tell me a bit about that and where that's going at the moment and what sort of messages you're trying to get across to women? I love the podcast. Can we just say that? I really... (laughs) Oh, they're terrific. I really have found not only a way to advocate, but also my own voice. Mm. So while I can't be a teacher, I'm still educating. Oh, essentially, that's what we're still doing. And that you can be passionate about what you do, but across a whole lot of different mediums and different modality. Podcasting has allowed not only for me to find my voice, but for my guests to actually say the words they've probably been thinking for a really long time um, for the professionals to very clearly articulate what they want to say to people. So we're in season three and we are now up actually up to the next phase of what we're doing, which is a video podcast. So we've just launched our YouTube channel because I think that in itself is more impactful. So yes, people can listen and have that auditory experience, but they can also watch the emotion of when either I'm talking or I'm talking to a guest and you can see it and you can feel it and you can interact and have 
that experience at that next level. So that's that's why I love it and that's why I'm excited about it. Wow, that's really exciting, Steph. Great new development for you and um, <laughs> I know how passionate you are about your podcast. I love listening to them myself. Thank um, you. And I think the other thing that the podcasts are doing and what we're trying to do with our podcast series is to really share stories so people who are going through similar experiences um, feel less alone and and feel um, that they can reach out, that support and help is available. And sometimes I think you just need to know where to go for that information. And I think that's a lot of what we're trying to do to educate people about. Yes, I totally agree. I wish mm, seven years ago I did feel like I was Googling every day and getting very little hits back in return. Mm. I was There were not as many blogs as there are now. There was not as many podcasts. There was not as many specialist talking out loud. I mean, now, goodness me, we've got people like the butt doctor, who's a a surgeon to correct, you know, things like birth injuries and anal sphincter injuries on Instagram. Like how amazing is that? Someone who is a medical professional trained talking to us. So if you don't have access to the funds to go and see him, you can at least get to know him or get to hear his message and his take on things before you get in that room, because quite often patients or women with prolapse, they're told to go and see someone and they get there and it's very underwhelming. It's like, oh, why are you the guru? You can't even look me in the face, (laughs) you know? And and, uh, that experience is changing because of our podcast, because of everyone actually starting to talk. So that's a great thing. Yeah, it's a fantastic thing. And I, I think if we're going to be able to make informed decisions, we have to be armed with that information beforehand, don't we? And yes, I'm sure after having reading your book that, yeah, you know, and sort of, you know, how unprepared you were and, and how um, bewildered by what was going on and, and how things weren't explained to you, um, that's, you know, a very challenging place to be. Yeah, I mean, and it goes deeper too. I think mm. over the years we have had people say, well, you shouldn't be spoon-fed all the information. You should go looking for it um, in terms of when you're pregnant, you're not, you're just pregnant. There's actually nothing wrong with you. You should be researching. To that point, I do want to say I thought I was researching, but I, I realised I was only getting half of the picture. So I could never have made an informed decision when things like government websites who talk about all the terminology of childbirth do not have a episiotomy in that list. And I'm telling you, there's still government sites right now in particular states that don't include it. There are textbooks that do not, actually no book in pregnancy has talked about pelvic organ prolapse to date that I have read. I think they're coming through now, which is great. But at that time, you can't search for terms for words that you don't even know what they are. Yeah, it's it's like trying to ask questions in a, a different language, isn't it? Unless you've yeah. got the language, how do you know <laughs> what you could you need to ask? Exactly, exactly. And I don't know if you've heard of this recently, but in social media when people love to just turn on one another, which is interesting, <laughs> yeah. they say, well, why is pelvic health such a trend topic right now? And I like to answer that with, well, why not? if you want to call it a trend I don't particularly care but if it means it's on your lips and everyone else's lips whatever it just needs to be talked about which is great 
Yeah. And the fact that people are talking about it tells you that people want to talk about it and perhaps (laughs) they're having some issues and they haven't been able to talk about it, but it's so important to talk about anything, any health issue, isn't it? So that you can get the right advice, support, treatment, et cetera. Yes. And keep living that fulfilling life that we all utterly yearn for and deserve, Nicola. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Steph, thank you so much. It's been wonderful and so informative talking to you as always. And (laughs) I really appreciate you being my guest on the podcast today. It has been my absolute pleasure, Nicola. Thank you so much. Thanks, Steph. Steph's books are The Day My Vagina Broke and Tips and Tricks for Living with Pelvic and Organ Prolapse. You can find more information on Steph and the Brave Mama website in the show notes for this episode. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Tune in next time to hear Greg Ryan's story as he shares his lived experience of bowel incontinence. Thank you for listening to today's podcast, brought to you by the Continence Foundation of Australia. The foundation supports all Australians living with or at risk of incontinence. Remember that support is available. For more information, go to continence.org.au or call the National Continence Helpline on 1800 33 0066 to speak with a nurse continence specialist. They offer free confidential information, advice and support. The helpline is open from 8am to 8pm, Monday to Friday, excluding national public holidays. The primary purpose of this podcast is to share personal stories and experiences. It is not a substitute for professional medical advice. Please consult your medical professional or healthcare provider if you require medical advice or treatment.